Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer, a biopic of one of the key leaders of the Manhattan Project, has sold out movie theaters all over the country. With its 3-hour runtime, notoriously large 70mm IMAX reels and star-stuffed cast, it is nothing less than an epic. The film spans nearly a quarter of a century from Oppenheimer's days as a physics student in Europe to his time at UC Berkeley during World War II to his days developing the atomic bomb at the Los Alamos laboratory and finally to the investigation into his possible communist ties during the McCarthy era. Amid all of that plot and history is plenty of awe-inspiring spectacle and deep musings on the ethics of war and the perils of genius. Your ears are probably ringing by now with the buzz about Oppenheimer, but we had to bring you a carefully considered film comment take on the film. So on today's episode, Clint and I are joined by programmer Maddie Whittle and critic Mark Ash for a discussion about Nolan's latest opus. A couple of us were fans and the others skeptics, and the result was a lively conversation, which of course is what the movies are all about. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And for the soon arriving film comment take on the summer's other big tentpole, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, make sure to subscribe to the film comment letter. If you are a dedicated follower of film comment and if you received last week's film comment letter, then you might have noticed that we said that we would be back on the podcast this week with a blast. Did you wonder? Is that maybe an maybe with like Dolby it would sound a little bit that more. That sounded like you a pigeon warbling like on the street. Um anyway, so now we are here, we are gathered here to reveal what that blast was in case you didn't figure it out. Yes, listeners, we are talking about Christopher Nolan's new film, Oppenheimer, today. Drum roll. The sound effects are so bad on this podcast. Anyway. Well, we're going to get some, um, we'll get, we'll fix it in post. That's appropriate that there be terrible dialogue mixing for a podcast about a Christopher Nolan film. Amen to that. Yeah. Let's hope that our dialogue is slightly more believable, as if it's coming from real human beings. Before you both start yakking away, why don't you introduce yourselves? All right. Uh, since I talked before, I'll talk again. Uh, I'm Mark Ash. I'm a film comic contributor, and I'm thrilled to be here with this roster of brilliant colleagues, a veritable Manhattan project of film criticism, Ooh. which also includes such luminaries as... Maddie Whittle. Uh, very happy to be here. I am also a film comic contributor and assistant programmer at Film at Lincoln Center, uh, and I'm excited to to talk Oppie. Okay, so Mark, I know that you came very prepared apparently with a plot summary and commentary and wikipedia entries that you very diligently read uh last night so why don't you summarize in brief what this film is about well this film begins with the atom it begins at the very core of of human existence um it actually actually opens um yeah, well, all the universe. It, it um, and uh, we uh, 
weirdly enough, I felt like the the way that this movie opens on the universal logo and the rim of the earth in space just actually kind of feels like appropriate for the uh, cosmic intentions of Christopher Nolan. Um, this is a film about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. This is sort of in some ways a very straightforward biopic that takes in, that takes in the majority of the span of his life but um his adult life well we yes we don't see him running around in sh- running around in short pants um playing stickball you have to you have to cut off you have how to much start how somewhere. much money are you willing to bet that that's on the cutting room floor yeah a, a, a sort of even more da even more like non-computer de-aged killian murphy just like with with a little with a little newsboy cap they uh, do change his hairstyle up a couple times I think that it's got to be the opening of Aviator, right? Where he's like learning the word quarantine and repeats it to himself over and over and over again. Same. That was Adam. Ad- that should have been in this movie. Like the Adam, this movie is split into two strands, threads, uh, nuclei. I don't actually know what happens when you split the Adam. Uh, timelines, kind of periods. Of yeah, threads, isotopes, narrative threads. We have a um. We have a color thread of the movie that is from the point of view of Oppenheimer taking in his journey through the post-Einsteinian world of European theoretical and quantum physics uh, in the uh, in the pre-World War II era, meeting all of these brilliant minds and becoming assimilated to all these exciting ideas, and then returning to America where he uh, becomes involved in uh, the lives of various people who are committed to leftist politics at the same time that he's uh, exploring many exciting things about the atom and the nature of the universe and at uh, at UC Berkeley and before be- going on to be the head of the Manhattan Project and develop the atomic bomb, which was, as, at least as the movie explains it, is a way to um, develop a weapon of mass destruction before the Nazis with their brilliant coterie of uh, European physicists do. And that's the color thread. And at the same time, there is a black and white thread from the point of view of Louis Strauss, who was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission and this sort of bureaucrat killjoy who butted heads with Oppenheimer frequently during the early days of the Cold War. And we all love a we all love a movie with a good congressional hearing framing device. Like a deposition is a great a, dep- a deposition or a hearing is a great way to get lot everybody from the movie in the same room together, one at a time, and just anchor these flashbacks and do all of these uh, mic drops and revelations. Do and... we all love that? I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> we, 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 it's, it's very, it's efficient storytelling. Let's just say. It's tried and true. <laughs> and then uh, the two hearings are respectively Oppenheimer's closed hearing in 1954 before the Atomic Energy Commission, who have revoked his security clearance because of his leftist associations and the shifting winds of the Cold War. And uh, Strauss's confirmation hearings uh, in the Senate, where Eisenhower has nominated him to be Secretary of Commerce. And in both cases, um, these men, uh, the uh, scientist and the political operator, who both tried to control very powerful forces, run up against the limitations of their own individual agency when they are sort of placed within the apparatus of real 
political power and the shifting winds of and unpredictable forces of history. And there's a line that Oppenheimer says in his opening statement for a security clearance hearing about having to justify one's whole life, um, which is a good, which is a very convenient way to start a flashback at the very beginning of the film, at the very beginning of his career, and go into the past, but also a sort of totemic line for the film, as both Oppenheimer and Strauss are reckoning with the choices that they have made over the course of the development of the atomic bomb and over the course of the Cold War and their various private and public lives. And yeah, um, somewhere in there, like a couple hundred thousand Japanese people die of radiation poisoning. And that's, you know, that's part of the movie. You know, it's it's in there. It's somewhere in there. That's the plot <laughs> of Oppenheimer, a movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all saw it together yesterday. We walked out and we were eagerly scanning each other's faces to see what we'd made of the movie. And I think, Maddie, you, you seemed like fairly pleased. So why don't you start us off? Because I know Clint and I have some brickbats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll start us off. I was pleasantly surprised. I will say I have been mixed on Nolan historically and his films. I um, respect a lot of what he does, but sometimes he does kind of elicit an eye roll from me on, on a, you know, in, in a general sense. I think um, there's a sort of self-seriousness that uh, can be winking or it can be uh, uh, un unconvincingly self-aware. Uh, but in the case of this movie, I was so absorbed and so impressed by what he pulls off uh, that I just was enthralled from start to finish. I, I was fully prepared to come into this film and be bored or, you know, just impatient for it to get to the point or whatnot. It's every every single moment of this film is towards an end. And I think that by and large it is successful i think there's you know i have my critiques i have which we can get into there are ways in which i wish nolan had pushed a little farther in certain narrative directions uh or psychological directions um but ultimately you know i i i can't argue with the effect of the film because i think it's a work of history and historical storytelling but also um just sort of a cinematic imagining of how a particular thorny historical story can be told. I think it's doing something really fascinating and really with a great deal of confidence. And um, so, yeah, ultimately I'm pro the performances are incredible. I think the writing is, uh, is really impressive the way that the film is constructed because as Mark alluded to, there are these threads and sort of, uh, different um, temporal foci, but none, none of them are linear. There's all, uh, it's structurally, it's a very complicated film in the way in which uh, scenes from the past anticipate and, and uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Foreshadow. Of? Foreshadow moments in the future, and then, you know, you're jumping back in time constantly. The color, uh, scheme that Mark mentioned is not entirely straightforward because there are certain moments in the timeline that are presented both in color and in black and white and that is a, a, an interesting framework to sort of trace as you're watching the film also uh, constantly shifting aspect ratios which have 
also something to do with context and memory and the situation of the uh, subjectivity remembering these events or experiencing these events. It's all very intricate, but you don't have to follow at every moment how the logic, how the, that this sort of narrative structure is operating in order to be uh, sort of swept up in its effects. And I just found that really um, pretty dazzling. Um, so anyway, that's sort of my spiel. I, I am pro. High praise. High praise. I, I just, I've, I'm at a loss. I feel like I watched a totally different movie than everybody else. <laughs> I'm questioning my sanity. Um, <laughs> They're just like Oppenheimer. <laughs> That's what the Film Common Podcast is about, questioning our sanity. When people call this movie intricate, I understand what they mean from, a, I think, technically, certainly, and like technically from a narrative standpoint, there are intricacies. I think that this is a extremely a blunt and straight, like narratively and emotionally, even and emotionally blunt and weak it left me completely cold there isn't really a human element to grab hold of in this film there are gestures toward that but they came off to me as very like perfunctory and really basic and it was unclear to me what the filmmaker was actually interested in in terms of ideas other than in terms of narrative other than in terms of like these two threads and using different aspect ratios and the technical the technical aspects of filmmaking, but he was marshalling all these forces to and to do something that I to an end that I didn't understand. It seemed he, there seemed to be a little bit of confusion in terms of what the actual ideas were that were being expressed, and and that is in terms of like you know there's the obvious idea is like the ethical and moral quandary of that Oppenheimer faced by, you know, building this bomb. He had to build the bomb in order to stop the war, but by doing so, he, quote, you know, became, de what is it? I am, I am become death destroyer of worlds. As I say those words, I feel like such a doofus because it is extremely pretentious to say that. And this movie just like leans into that kind of pretentious gesturing towards bigger ideas without actually seeing it, without actually investigating any of them, without actually digging on, like t digging into the, the quandaries that it's supposedly about. Instead, we just have like a bunch of stick figures who have little name cards who they literally have numbers. All the characters wear little, uh, little buttons that have their, I don't know, army number on them and like to me that that kind of represented what Nolan was doing in terms of the act the human beings on screen too including Oppenheimer who's really just sort of empty to me the character in this film um and you know you get these like caricatures really too you also have these historical characters a real something that drives me crazy in movies like this you have Gary Oldman as Harry S Truman doing some like absolutely insane accent it's just like a cartoon character. It's like Foghorn Leghorn like rolls into the Oval Office to like have a conversation with Robert o in a movie in which like it makes no sense for Foghorn Leghorn to do that. And then there's also just these compressions of the storyline where he just kind of needs to shoehorn in some information. So you have like a scene that I think will probably become a meme where a car drives away and then Albert Einstein is standing behind the car randomly in front of Robert Oppenheimer's house for no reason. 
in order to walk across the driveway in the middle of the night, walks across the driveway after a secret meeting that Oppenheimer had. There's no reason for Einstein to be there. Einstein has nothing to do with this moment. There is a reason, though. The reason is it's awesome. Yeah, and he pops up, like, pops up like the Phantom of the Opera coming down from like behind the gravestone. You're like, how did he keep doing that? It's like Gene Parmesan. Like Gene Parmesan. Just, yeah, exactly. It's exactly like Gene Parmesan. <laughs> the whole point is that like the only reason he's there is to deliver like a famous line that Einstein said to Oppenheimer in reality in an entirely different context. Like, if this guy's such a brilliant storyteller, figure out a way, just cut to the scene where he's meeting with Einstein and have him tell have Einstein deliver the line there. I, I, there were things like this where I was just like, and this is not just, this is just the most egregious example of this to me, but like, the movie is just riddled with these kind of like really broad strokes that allow characters to say like catchphrases that sound really profound and are com- like sound like some sort of comment on history, but are just ultimately just like meaningless once you bring them all together to me. Now, if somebody wants to explain yeah. the movie to an idiot like me, please, I would love to understand what exactly this movie is about. That's not what I'll do because I share your feelings. I think that so context is that I really liked Nolan's early films um, when Inception and Interstellar came out. I mean, I was like a much younger person and my tastes have since changed. So who knows? But then, you know, I was really fond of his films because I I did feel like they they managed to tap into awe. Like uh, Interstellar really like the, it, it did manage to elicit real awe from me and with Inception it managed to like marry a very intricate idea about narrative and time and a very, a very intricate structure time travel structure with a very moving and sincere and kind of basic story about grief and bereavement and love in both films I think which you know are probably my favorite of his films though I also like um Memento quite a bit I think this this is the kind of was the true line that appealed to me this idea of intricacy married with something very simple very kind of humanist universally appealing um and then Dunkirk and Tenet I thought were just awful and I thought that the overcalculation of his films um, escalated and the that kind of emotional pull waned. You know that balance kind of um, was upset in the last two films. I felt, and I really think also that Dunkirk, I especially didn't like for a variety of reasons that I, you know, we don't need to get into that film here. But I didn't think that he worked well with real history. I thought that when it was, you know, science fictional, Inception, Interstellar, when when he was visualizing things that we are like not able to visualize, then his technical and cinematic sleight of hand was impressive to me because it seemed to open up modes of feeling, you know, through visual means. But with history, you know, history that we all know, history that we can read, it f- somehow felt very showy and lacking a, a like lacking imagination, you know, kind of just uh, emphasizing very obvious aspects of war, for example, through cinematic trickery. And that is 
part of my problem with Oppenheimer too. I think it is a very obvious retelling of the story of Oppenheimer. Every single theme or idea that this movie conveys, whether it's about the ethics of the bomb, whether it's about the... Um, you know, the experience of being a brilliant person and how brilliance is instrumentalized by pol politicians, by scientists. Is another... The process of discovery and revelation. Yeah, uh, McCarthyism. And what about a little nod to toxic masculinity? Radioactive masculinity. Not just toxic, it's sure. purely radioactive. It's yeah. all in there. <laughs> it's, a... it's all but in there. All of that is, all of those are just like the broad, very surface level ideas that we already I feel know of this history right and I don't think it really takes any of those ideas and either portrays them in a new light whether like cinematically or intellectually you know I didn't come away provoked to think about any of these ideas in a new way were you was any was anybody moved by this film I think my seat rattled I would say I was <laughs> I think I did have to plug my ears at one point because of the <laughs> bomb sound <laughs> i actually thought about interstellar a lot with this film which is a film that i i think is deeply flawed but that i am very fond of because i think that interstellar has a balance of sentiment and uh portent that doesn't quite work it just never it's never quite marrying yeah. those two forces in a way that i found satisfying and in this film, I genuinely thought that while it is very much, you know, painted in broad strokes, it's it's very Cameron-esque in some ways. It's it's very sort of presenting you with its ideas in literal explicit terms. But maybe credit to the performance, credit to the uh, the sort of non-linearity of the narration. I I genuinely came away from it with a kind of awe for the limitations of a single human mind and a single human morality. And this, like you see in the way you see Oppenheimer's sort of moral calculus play out over the course of his life, over these periods of his life and the way that he wrestles with the choices he's made in his personal life to a lesser extent, but in his professional life to a, to an intense degree I think uh, I was I was genuinely moved by that. I was genuinely. Were you genuinely moved when he brought his child to his friend's house and left his child at his friend's house because the, he cried too much? <laughs> like, because his wife like... was descending into alcoholism, yeah, like I... yeah, yeah. which you can tell because he comes home and the baby is crying and she's sitting at the kitchen table with a bottle of gin. Yeah, we this is the... Okay, that is a, okay. We can get into the 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 women in this film too at some point, but. So, um, you know, I grew up with my dad uh, talking a lot about how Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita, you know, when when talking about like the bomb. And so the line, I'm become debt destroyer of worlds is from the Bhagavad Gita. And um, I was very interested uh, to see how that would be presented in the movie. And it comes up twice. The first time is when he is hooking up with Florence Pugh, who plays Jean Tatlock, um, who he meets at what, like a communist gathering um, or a leftist gathering rather at Berkeley. 
and she finds a copy of the Bhagavad Gita on his shelf and brings it to him and makes him read that sentence while she rides him, which is... In Sanskrit. It's very Dr. Strangelove. Okay, you know, people always used to accuse Nolan of not having any sex in his movies. And then he has like a couple scenes of sex in this movie that are just some of the worst examples of sex on screen that I've seen. Very perfunctory sex scenes. Florence Pugh is like covered in like a layer of grease throughout the movie for some reason. Oh, it, though, though, on, on 70 millimeter, uh, on 70 millimeter as shot, as photographed by Hoyt Van Hoytema, her body glistens. It's, it's oh, the, war, the warm flesh tones. That scene I found to be incredibly grating. I wouldn't even say corny because corny still implies some kind of basic emotional appeal. It just was kind of gross to me, you know, like yeah. him reading that line. And, and that is a filmmaker's invention, right? This is not something that Oppenheimer like wrote in a diary. So this is the cinematic invention that just feels so unimaginative to me. And then the second time that line appears is when they do the first Trinity test, which is, of course, one of the big moments visually the movie is building toward, right? And that's the kind of moment we know that's a Nolan moment. Like when I say like I like Interstellar, it's like those scenes like when he when they like enter the fifth dimension or when right, right. when they go on that planet and they realize that these mountains are waves like, you know, playing with mm-hmm. scale and like the things that human minds cannot even really comprehend, let alone perceive. And that scene I thought was filmed again in such a predictable way, like the tricks he used are so predictable. You mean the Trinity test? Yeah, it's like, you know, all of these people cowering and then the bomb goes off. And so we cut from like really loud sound to complete silence and you just see the light and just see the image. And then you hear that line. I'm not sure if it's an actual archival recording of Oppenheimer saying it or they're replaying, you know, a recording of uh, Killian Murphy saying it in the earlier scene when Florence Pugh, I remind you again, is riding him Mm -hmm. uh, because it sounds kind of crackly. But in either case, I just thought that it's just extremely, you know, it's like underlining something three times. You know, that's how everything just feels very blunt, predictable, heavily underlined. I wish that he had done something else with this line, with this like, what, like, you know, why does Oppenheimer quote this line? What did he make of it? Like, According to my understanding, it has a, you know, its origins in the Bhagavad Gita. It has like connections to how one conceives of one's duty as opposed to the consequences of that duty. The film doesn't get into any of that. It just takes these like little references and then like assembles them together in these very obvious, visually blunt, intellectually Mm -hmm. blunt sequences. It just sounds cool. You know, it sounds cool. And again, it sounds like it's meaningful. And that's why this movie is, to me, like, extremely pretentious. There's something naive, like, at the core. Like, there's something naive about this movie and about uh, Nolan's films, I think. Like, Interstellar, to me, also has this. Where there's a calculated attempt to insinuate emotional content that comes off, to me, as really false. And I just don't buy. Um, And in this case, there's a calculated attempt to insinuate this philosophical religious content that also comes that also rings false to me. And uh, and I think like ultimately, like I don't you know, I have a weird vision of Christopher Nolan as a sympathetic character, too. Like, I'm, I don't I'm not. 
in my mind. Like I think of him as like somebody trying real hard who just can't really think, conceive of like a human being as a comp in all their complexity, you know, and like communicate that on screen, but really, really wants to. And it's like, and that's why like, I think not to go completely off the rails here, but you know, he's been giving all these interviews about like the dangers of AI. And the one thing I kept thinking of as I was, as I was listening to the dialogue in this film is like, this sounds like it was the film, the, this was a screenplay that was written by chat GPT. There's just like a dearth of humanity somewhere in the middle of it, or just like there's a calculation to this filmmaking and writing. You're telling me scientists just walk around dropping like aphorisms and little, you know, mic drop catchphrases. All I will say is that I, in this conversation, is making me want to rewatch Titanic because to me, this is Nolan's Titanic. That I like. Yeah, but Titanic has at least a goddamn love story, man. Yes. Like a poor, you know, rich girl meets poor boy love story. Which is also written like a dialogue tree in a civilization game. Like, it's fine. It's all fine. That's just populism, baby. Right, but it foregrounds the love story in a way that's realistic. Aliens foregrounds the Newt and Ripley relationship in a way that is like actually that shows like a grasp on human relationships that actually is moving. Like, the, like that's what... That's what separates Cameron here, I think, for me, is like like the relationship of in Terminator, you know, like between the mother and like these these are meaningful relationships that he shows that he actually puts in the in front of the, the science fiction in a way. And the science fiction follows that. This seems to be like led by technical interests and like the intricacies of putting something together right and only secondarily is he interested in, in is in investigating like the moral struggle of Oppenheimer or the life of Ro- of Robert Oppenheimer which is only like re- referenced in like, as kind of signposts here like his relationships with his family his you know all of the secondary all of the characters who are his family are just kind of like pop in and pop out quickly you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter it's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comments editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Well, the description of Nolan as a cold technician is sort of, I think, key to what the movie is, what the movie is doing. I will say um, that the sort of Munich callback of I am uh, Munich style callback of now I am just death destroyer worlds is meant to associate, I think, Nolan, like Oppenheimer's sense of guilt and uh, overwhelming personal responsibility by associating the bomb with the one woman who he couldn't save, his mistress, who who was emotionally troubled and killed herself. And which is a very much a Nolan thing to sort of, he doesn't have a dead wife in this one. He has a dead mistress and the dead mistress is sort of the synecdoche for his larger, larger questions of guilt and responsibility in a very Nolan-y sort of like efficient and sort of limiting way, which I guess leads me into what I was going to say, which is that like, I don't necessarily um, disagree with anything that, uh, you guys are saying. I'm just going to say the same thing, basically, but in like a happier tone of voice. But um, <laughs> in a major it, key, in a term, yeah. But in terms, yeah, exactly. In terms of like 
what Clint was saying earlier about the storytelling skill and predictability and whether there are any themes and what. I mean, I think there are themes. I just don't think that they're like that. He goes, you know, beyond superficial investigations of those things. Well, I kind of I'm, I've, I've been thinking through it, trying to figure out how far beneath the surface um, I can get with it, because it is such a fun, super compressed biopic, which has all of those pithy little things that like are just a ways that movies like condense history into little snacky sizes like the way that it uses it uses Einstein the way that he uses both David Bowie and the idea of Nikolai Tesla in the prestige because everybody knows Einstein and everybody knows he knew more than anybody else uh, so he can be a structural anchor and a moral center and he can be the sort of magus figure yeah but the prestige is about magicians and magic tricks you know but they explain the magicians and magic tricks in the prestige and in this well, movie, there's absolutely no attempt to explain the physics. I have a, a take on that, but I'll let Mark finish. At the beginning, I was very annoyed. I wrote so many dumb anachronisms and simplifications into my, mo- into my notebook. There's a great scene at the beginning of the movie where Werner Heisenberg ends right. his lecture by saying, have a great day, which is just a very funny thing that happens in the movie. Like, And I, at a certain point, I just gave into it. There's like a, somebody hands... Oppenheimer a newspaper that the headline of which is Hitler invades Poland right, right, like, right. because like so there's a way in which this history is all made um accessible and there's all these really like pithy snappy dialogues that begin to sort of hint at larger issues like um Oppenheimer saying like oh I'm not a self-made man but my father was and this idea of Jewish assimilation as like a sort of false hope and false consciousness um there's a lot of corny old school the way that like yeah he assembles the manhattan project is sort of like a getting the team together montage in a heist movie let's put on a show yeah let's it's yeah and it's so compressed so we go from we go right from he's getting an overture about potentially spying for the russians and then the conversation is interrupted by his because we have to get that part in and then his drunk wife comes into the kitchen it's like are the martinis ready because we have to remember that she's an alcoholic every 20 minutes because that's when she throws her bottle at the wall that's that was like i also just felt bad for both emily blunt and florence Pugh because they had to like read this dialogue and perform these scenes and it's just well it's unfair it was unfair to them don't forget the one woman who comes in and and is like they asked me if i knew how to type i have a graduate chemistry degree from harvard and then we do see her in two more scenes to be clear and in one of them she gets annoyed that the men are patronizingly concerned about her reproductive health oh yeah <laughs> anyway sorry. yeah it's great yeah well you have all of this there's a great bit where like oh, there's super underlined dialogue parallels in the strauss and oppenheimer things and so many easter eggs you recognize from history like the possibly apocryphal story about how Secretary of War Stimson didn't want to drop the bomb on Kyoto because he honeymooned there. And basically all the arguments for and against dropping the bomb are all pushed into this one scene where everybody has a little bit of dialogue. And like, yes, it's not just the women who are saddled with this dialogue. It's basically everybody because like they all have to deliver these really compact and accessible Equal opportunity, bad dialogue. At a certain point, it begins to remind me of like... Um, all of those supersized cast of thousands eccentric auteur historiographies from the early 90s, like right, Malcolm right. X and Chaplin and JFK. Um, and much like JFK, there's all of these really funny, like there's Wikipedia deep dives if you're into that. And so many one scene performances by Sear, by like a dude from Hollywood showing up in one scene to play a dude from history. And basically like 
at a certain point, it becomes like a version of network where Oppenheimer meets a new Ned Beatty every 30 minutes who gives him a new version of the you have meddled with the primal forces of nature speech. Um, and so I think that like this idea of power is what's happening here because Nolan is interested in spectacle, right? All the Batman movies are about terror and shaping public narratives and um, there's that really dumb, really great line in Inception where he's like, you only realize after you wake up how wrong your dreams were. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean, dude? But OK. Um, <laughs> and so here Nolan is concerned with power and the bomb, the, the atomic bombing wasn't an act of war. It was an act of terror. It was meant to scare Japan into surrendering. And so so he's finally with this movie, Nolan, found a spectacle as that's actually as important as he is self-important. And so that's a line in the movie in going into all of these um, political machinations um, with Oppenheimer, who can't control the thing that he built, you sort of feel Nolan, the artist, the maker of spectacle, the driven, naive, hubristic genius working within a system that leverages his talents and eats him up. Um, and why that works for me is that it's not just about. No, I suppose like it's not just about Nolan, it's. And it's not just about nukes, it's about human arrogance and the amoral pursuit of progress. And like, although the, the idea of like a world that end, is consumed by fire didn't actually come to pass in the way that like Oppenheimer feared that it would in nuclear apocalypse, at least not yet, the world is actually burning. So I found just enough there to be like, I understand what he's trying to do here. And I guess I wonder whether um, this very accessible, very broad strokes, no detail, very limited, which has more or themes than insight, whether he's made big ideas accessible at the expense of being smart about them. But I think he's too, he chases the payoff too hard. Like he's building scenes, moments, dialogues for that like punchline moment, you know, that that he chases those cheap emotional payoffs so hard that everything feels calculated in service of them as opposed to dwelling in certain ideas. Like Everything we've talked about, whether it's how certain, you know, these dialogues, these insertion of certain scenes, how the women are used in the film, it's all because I think it's all like these pieces assembled together for this blast, you know, this to elicit a certain reaction from the audience that ultimately I think in this movie comes off as a little cheap because this movie has enough there to dwell in to like rethink to like present in a new way to the world right unlike any of the past movies unlike even the batman movies where we're going there for that thrill you know we're yeah. going there for the thrill of the of the spectacle well to start with my main critique of the film i think kind of leads me to why i ended up you know being very impressed by it in a way that's sort of just you know maybe recognizing nolan's limitations uh, is that like okay so the 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 women, the women characters are very much the vessels for the personal. And every attempt that Nolan makes in this film, and it's, I, I think these attempts leave something to be desired, but every attempt he makes at humanizing um, Oppenheimer as like a mortal man, a mortal man in a body with, you know, a... a he's he's a genius but he's he's sexy guy like he's sexy he's a ladies man but ultimately he lamp pipe all over berkeley right ultimately he's he's a mortal man while i think emily blunt and florence Pugh both give very strong performances especially emily blunt they feel perfunctory as characters the sex scenes feel perfunctory 
it all feels a little bit that Nolan's heart is not in it, that his heart is in the science, it's in the politics, it's in the bureaucratic operations, it's in the sort of professional drama. I don't even feel it there, though. I think his heart is just in the cutting and the scoring and the shooting. That's also part of the point, is that he is too technical to see the big picture. Like, there's that great... One of the great, like, great man of history character actor cameos... um, I'm I'm going back and forth on whether to spoil it, but at one point James Urbaniak shows up as Kurt Girdle for like one scene, and you're like, yes, yes, I I fully pointed at the screen and like put um, pumped my fist a little bit. Um, and he's wandering in a forest, and he's looking up at the trees, and he's saying, "What amazing trees you have here in America!" And Einstein like whispers in Oppenheimer's ear, "Kurt forgets to eat. I'm worried about him." And so what we have here is a very literal manifestation of a guy who's even more brilliant than Oppenheimer and even more far gone. And he's not able to see the forest for the trees. You get it? Are you saying that that's Nolan? I'm saying that that's Oppenheimer. That's Nolan. That's the whole idea of science and human progress and artistic endeavor in general. That seems pretty awfully self-important if like the argument is that Nolan and filmmaking are like corollaries to Oppenheimer and, you know, the work of scientists behind uh, weapons of mass destruction. And it's also very literal. We also have to acknowledge the fact that Oppenheimer is several times referred to as a prophet. And your belief, your prophet can, can't be wrong, right, at one point. So there's a messiah element to, the, to his characterization, too, that is like... So, like, to me, yeah, I think you're right, Mark. I think that these ideas are, again, being, like, gestured at. But then there's, there's all these other confusing ideas that also get shoehorned in that, that don't elaborate the original idea. I don't like, think that because the scientists in the movie cannot see the forest for the trees, Nolan should make a movie where the forest is lost in the trees. Like, that's not like a good justification of a movie <laughs> yeah. that's overly technical. This gets back to my critique, which is that ultimately for us to buy Oppenheimer's moral dilemma, we have to buy him as a human man. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, the, all the prophet Messiah talk is, you know, Jesus was a, a, a lived in a human body and and Prometheus was the human who brought fire, you know, stole fire from the gods. And like I think Nolan wants us to see his Oppenheimer as this very, you know, a, a, a worldly man. And that he tries to he tries to accomplish that through sex, through this this sort of intimate entanglements that he has with these women in his life with which also you know, are are have a moral dimension, right? But by by not really investing any um, sort of philosophical weight in those relationships, by ignoring that part of the forest, or emotional, I think weight, he yeah. shortchanges. Yeah, exactly. I think I think we don't get that side of Oppenheimer built out in a way that. Um, fully completes that picture. Even and though Killian Murphy's eyes try their best. They try their best, and he does a great job. He's very broody in this film, and, and very convincingly so. But to me, this begs the question, like, do we get the other side, too? Because I wasn't, I didn't buy him as a brilliant scientist, either, because he's not shown doing any science, other than, like, writing a couple math problems on a chalkboard and then being like, I've got it. You know, and like, receiving other people's brilliant ideas. Well, he delegates like a director. So this is actually my other read... We've talked about the prestige. We've talked about interstellar. We've talked about Dunkirk. You've got magic. You've got theoretical physics. You've got history. Okay, let me back up a second. So I saw interstellar 
And I remember speaking to my one of my, my my oldest friend, my oldest childhood friend, who is a physicist. At the time, she was finishing up her degree, her undergrad degree. Now she's got a PhD from Harvard. She's like brilliant scientist. And I remember she said she went to see Interstellar with her her physics cohort, mm-hmm. and the the theoretical physicist loved it, and the experimental physicists hated it. And I think that uh, is sort of. A, a, a nice little summation of one of Nolan's challenges is that he loves the theory, he loves the awe, he loves the sort of magic of science. In this, in in Oppenheimer, they talk about how it's more important to to hear the music than to be able to read the music. Apparently, something Niels Bohr just walked around as a saying metaphor for algebra. Yeah, as a metaphor for mathematical theory, that Kenneth you need Branagh, to hear it like mean. music. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I just think that that is that is absolutely Nolan's uh, uh, sort of approach, and he's he's fascinated by the history. He's he's full of awe for the science, uh, but he's historically not had a very easy time striking the right balance between his own fascinations. And I think in this film, he took the note about theoretical versus experimental. F- physics he didn't try to get in the weeds about actually explaining the physics of the nuclear bomb he just sort of tried to evoke the awe that Oppenheimer himself as a genius was experiencing around this intellectual discovery but he does all that and you know ties it into this historical narrative about you know political responsibility and moral responsibility but he does all that while still not getting the sentiment part quite right and not a- accessing the, the the psychological realities in a in a mm-hmm. totally convincing way it's yeah. it's maybe more literal than lyrical in the way that like he gets Hoy van Hoytema to do basically the same abstract visualizations of uh of the atomic bomb as he did for like the as he did for like deep space and ad astra he's mm-hmm. like we'll get yeah it's very it's much um it's it we've it's very like it's very it's very stru- it's conceived very structurally like now something lyrical happens now there's a callback to this theme and that's okay but like that's you know we all we all saw the same movie in terms of whether this gets there and also in terms of like the, the dichotomy of like theoretical and uh experimental i mean ultimately because N- nolan is very i mean nolan is very interested in dualities and in like dichotomies and this film uh very much like the prestige has like two opposing figures in um oppenheimer and straws the downy character who were like one is color one is black and white on the side robert denny jr is like very good in this oh yeah he's very good he's a very fine actor he's great um, i thought he was the best actor in the movie to be honest he was the only one that was like oh this is a real human being speaking these like in ridiculous words. Yeah, but like at the same time, it's a bad choice because I don't think that Straws is a strong enough historical counterweight to the Oppenheimer narrative. Yeah. Like I understand the parallels that he's doing about power and allows us to get all and it just allows us to get all these people in the same room. I think it's a poor narrative choice, but it it works even a little bit because Robert Downey Jr. is like yeah. a powerful presence. Yeah, and because like that he's the one character who you're not entirely you don't entirely have a fix on. You don't know yeah. if this person is evil. You don't know if he's mm. a good person who's just kind of a smaller mind than op- than these physicists. I do agree with Mark, though. Like, I haven't read the book, but it felt a little overstretched to me the way in which this um, 
conflict between Strauss and Oppenheimer was set up as the central framework of the film and the through line through which Oppenheimer's moral uh, quandaries around the bomb, but also how he was persecuted for his leftist associations and clearly his Jewishness, even though that's not made very emphatic in the latter half of the film. But all becomes very pat at the end when in this kind of like last hour, which actually was my favorite hour, the one with the hearing, as Mark said, I I count myself among the we that Mark was referring to when he said we all love a good congressional (laughs) hearing movie because... I think that really works. It has a kind of West Wing-ish, you know, aspect. It's like all those things that Nolan seems to love, these like little revelations and twists and these, you know, people acting very righteous and making the right choice and all all of these like morally portentous, you know, little moments. They work in that context because that context is it's like a more it's a moral theater or something, right? Mm -hmm. Moral and political. But it's like a whole separate movie almost. But that's the thing, all the actual big ideas, which to me, again, obviously the subject is very, very profoundly relevant even today. You know, the question of like, what is the responsibility? If we can, should we do it? Like if we can build something, should we build something? The the kind of choices that are made in war about like losing our men versus like killing, you know, a hundred thousand of the enemies, but all of these things, they all become just little talking points that ultimately culminate in this idea of like the petty wounded bureaucrat versus this great scientist who tried to stand up for what's right. But what did he stand up for? What exactly did he actually stand up for? Like it's that's that's never even clear. Well, like, I don't I, I think to the film's credit, Nolan is not I don't think he's suggesting that Oppenheimer ever stood up for anything. I think he's Prometheus being, you know, eternally pecked by the birds or whatever. No, because I just I don't think he is. I think he wins in the end. I mean, he wins in that he's in that his reputation is burnished and he's being and he's being made into this like god figure in a in a on an IMAX screen. Because remember, his wife says, I can't believe you're letting them do this to you. Like, she said, you keep martyring yourself. Don't don't martyr yourself. Right. And it's it's like I just and when I say that, what does he stand up for? I'm not I'm not saying when I say like, what what does Oppenheimer stand up for? Why doesn't the movie show that? I'm not even saying like the movie makes him out to be good or bad. It just rushes through all of these ideas and just presents him as a morally conflicted, but some, but with certain convictions, you know, a man with moral conflict, but certain convictions. But it's never actually clear what those convictions or those conflicts are, because earlier in the film, he's shown as someone who is not like, who is political, but like kind of likes to pick and choose his politics, who will donate money to leftist causes, but won't join the Communist Party, like kind of like a slightly aloof scientist, but with you know, with certain conscientious commitments. So then, like, what is actually the moral, his moral trajectory over the course of this project is not clear. And then you jump to the end of the film where he is this, you know, righteous figure being tarred by these, you know, tarred and feathered by these politicians. So then, to me, like, the reason I wanted to see this movie was to revisit that chapter in history from a, again, from... And a moral ideological point of view, not like I want this movie to give me a lecture, but I was hoping it would reignite some of those questions, make us think about what it meant for 
someone like him at that time to be made the leader of this project, what the people in the project were really wrestling with. But instead, we just have like some people who are kind of like some some of his um, team members who are just like, you know, uh, having people sign some kind of petition against using the bomb. You know, you never actually get into the arguments there. A few days before seeing this, I... Uh in a very random meme way, the phrase uh, the mid-man theory of history popped into my head. And I kept thinking about it while seeing this film because Oppenheimer is decisively not a great man in this film. And I think that Nolan doesn't know how to feel about the, the choice, the ethical valence of the choices that Oppenheimer makes. And I think that the strength of the film is that Oppenheimer is shown to change his mind and to even not necessarily at the end of his life know how to feel because I don't think he's fully let go of his pride in having done this incredible scientific achievement. He's just tormented by the sort of inability to have a clear um, right or wrong yeah. interpretation of his own actions. And I think that is... Uh, that is the strength of the film is that we're not really, he's not really a hero. He's not really shown as a great man who changed the world. He's just a man with a complicated psychology and a, and a flawed moral compass that he himself never quite gets a grasp on. That would be the strength of the film. If the film were a different film about like that actually dove into like the psychology of a person with a conflicted moral compass. But to me, like the film itself is confused about its, its morality. It's confused about what it wants to say about this person's decisions, or I don't know if it's confused. It doesn't say anything that I don't disagree with. <laughs> I, I don't think it knows what it's, I don't think it knows what it wants to say in the same way that Oppenheimer is unwilling to commit to any, any specific like point of view throughout the film really he just well, kind of constant he's always kind of shifting and leaving himself openings right even during yeah. his hearings the film also seems to be doing that and i'm and ultimately i think it just becomes like a you know i think we're left with kind of like a thin gruel and that needs that needs some seasoning like well i think that like something like i remember very much from undergraduate creative writing workshops is that like a big breakthrough that some students eventually reach and some students never do is that like a poem can be about anything like you don't have to start you don't like you you come in as like you come in real hot and you're writing poems about love and um history and the big themes of the world and then somebody shows you something like fool's errand by k ryan which is a poem about like a dog going out to like pick up a stick and it can do this as many times as it wants. And this is a poem about, you know, implicitly here is a little story, a little sliver of reality that's actually speaks to, um, that's as profound as something like, uh, the imagining Sisyphus happy, like, and there's right, right. a, a whole but world that's what it's about in this you know? simple act. Yeah. And there's a whole world contained in this single small action. And I think that that's a hard, and I think that like, maybe this is something that, People talk a lot about Nolan as like an undergraduate filmmaker because he's into big things, not small things. And there are some weaknesses there, like he's going to make a movie about a guy who has a voyage of self-discovery as a young man in Europe in which there's a montage where he listens to Stravinsky, reads The Wasteland and looks at a Picasso painting and it all happens in 45 <laughs> seconds. Yeah, no, it's like and there's never like it's it's too big, but at the same time, 
it allows him to work on this enormous canvas and wrestle with ideas about spectacle and theater and um I just don't human I don't and see human and human striving um but well but well let's well you know he wrestles it, with it in the scene where Einstein pops up from behind the car and it's like hey it's me Albert Einstein that's just a, a footnote from history you know that he there's has so to many include. footnotes from history in this movie that are that he had to include it's great including the fact that I, that Einstein is wearing his classic Einstein outfits in every scene he appears in Einstein well, that's how we'll remember who he wore, is. Like, he only wore those things. He never like. <laughs> I also just want to point out: in a nonfiction written text, you can have footnotes and endnotes. In a film, that's much harder to do. So you have to find ways to bring that content. If you're making a, if you're making a, a mainstream film that's yeah. de- intended to be a, a, you know, deliver history right. uh, to an audience who might not know that mainstream film of the year. In some yeah. in terms of its storytelling, I, I have to say the first hour I found so just unnecessary. The movie could just have started when he was at Berkeley or something, like closer to his you know recruitment to the Manhattan Project. I found it very confusing because in addition to all these, yeah, like what Mark just described, this compressed uh, uh, European culture meant tour and all these little exchanges with other scientists like Heisenberg and Bohr and all these little, you know, examples of his genius, how he learned like German overnight and his uh, slow awareness of, you know, this anti-Semitic kind of campaign in Europe, all of that. I, all of that introduces ideas about him that ultimately don't play into the later parts of the film, you know, and mm-hmm. the the depiction of him as the leader of the Manhattan Project at all. Because, like, this first hour dis- demonstrates him as, like, a kind of, like, depressive, neurotic, but very, very, you know, profoundly smart genius, like Alan Turing or someone. But we never actually see him do any genius physics, right? He's more of a team leader. Right. He's more like a political figure. It's not even clear why in the movie, not in history, why he is hired by the US, right? He's not even the one making like the biggest breakthroughs or anything. Like at we least in the movies. Yeah, at least in the movie's narrative. So like this first hour, he's like uh, apparently like barely able to, you know, make... Uh, normal conversation with people is almost killing a mean professor, you know? I think going back to what Maddie said, it's like this attempt at psychologization that just, you know, kind of doesn't just fail. It kind of like upsets the balance of the whole movie. The thing I'm thinking about as we're talking about this is that I actually think his movies that work best for me are the Batman movies because they're pulp, because because the, the content is pulp. So there's he's not trying to elevate he's he elevates it just by uh through his technical genius right or through his interest in elevated technique. So the, the and you take for granted that it's not important so he can have fun right. with the self-important. And like and you know the the basic metaphors of Batman are so obvious and on the surface that you know and like these grand ideas of cr- you know crime and Batman like as a dual personality like these things are like really kind of surface level things that we can grab onto, but then can like, you can have like, those movies are fun. And this one seems like it's, to me, it's not fun. I don't know. I guess not even when Einstein pops up from behind the car. That is the one, but that is, I don't, that cannot possibly be on purpose. (laughs) It's like a scene from it's to me, it reminded me of like a Mr. Show sketch or something like suddenly like this Einstein guy walks out of the bushes and is like, says a line from history and then disappears again. (laughs) 
so, so this is it actually like, there was a there was a there was a discourse on Twitter recently about whether Nolan movies were funny and and had comedy in them. And to me, it's just like, of course, of course, he meant that to be. Of course, he meant like every Einstein line. Well, I mean, like, I think he has a sense of humor because, like, to me, the Batman movies are actually kind of funny, and like, yeah. there's fun, there's jokes in them where they that are like, but again, those jokes are always like they're telegraphed and it's like now is the joke part where bet where like the guy shows he is charming by telling a joke like i don't think the uh, einstein pop-up moment was meant to be i don't think so funny because i think it was because what's the the message that he delivers is so is like something really important right like you need to walk away from this this. like turn your back nuclear bomb bomb it's about a weapon of mass destruction like yeah but you get a movie about about the nuclear bomb that you can enjoy with a big popcorn also the character of einstein in not in the film but in the public imagination is as this kind of wise merlin-esque kind of trickster almost you know you've all seen the picture of him sticking his tongue way out and like i think that this movie is very much leaning into that version of einstein is like the genius who who sees who 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 transcends sort of the 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 need for seriousness can we get an einstein biopic like I, I kind of. Oh, this be, movie made so me much. think. You would that. hate that. They did a oh, miniseries. The, you know, the thing is, like, this movie made me think. Like, you cannot put Einstein just doesn't work in a movie. Like, you can't have him be in a movie. Like, he just seems like we know his his public persona is just is so broad and so like known that anytime he pops up in a movie, you're like, that's Einstein. He's gonna do the tongue thing, or like he's gonna play the violin and say something like one of his many aphorisms. Mm. Yeah, you know, like, and that's exactly. And this movie what he is full of guys movie. like that. Yeah, this movie but, has like twenty guys like that. It has like that's Gary Oldman as 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 Harry Truman. That's uh, right, right. That's uh, Urbaniak as as Gerdel. Like, it, yeah, there's yeah. it's just so it's just full. It's a film full of guys from history. It it really is. It's a dudes film. Um, I I just want I want us to demand more from blockbusters. You know, I'm not I'm not opposed to like big enjoyable movies i'm not opposed to movies that employ you know that make ideas accessible and employ broad strokes you know i love for example like jordan peele movies i loved nope i love spielberg you know Mm -hmm. but there is there's just those movies like are really able to marry i know we've said this point before but they're able to marry a very realistic sense of emotion like human emotion with their flourishes, like cinematic flourishes. And I think that given a subject like this, which remains, I think, very complex, you know, whose wounds remain like fairly, I mean, this was not that long ago that the bomb was dropped, whose wounds remain like unhealed, which is the moral questions are really weighty. I mean, they really are like questions of the world's, life or death i just think we we deserve more does this does it also does it also seem like this movie is just very like insular and kind of sealed off to the to the world outside like we don't know what's we don't we frequently don't know at what point in the war we're at the only information that we get about the war is from like people running in with newspapers being like this is happening show you the newspaper well that's because they're in a bubble i mean right but but the move the fil- the film is not in a bubble because the film moves around and we see different times in history we see different people at, but at different points 
So the film can show have a broader scope, and it chooses not to. I think what you're saying is it's a. I think that is a a a product of the fact that for Nolan, the who you know wrote and directed, ultimately he's not interested in World War Two or in the problem of nuclear proliferation. You know, global geopolitics. He's interested in this story as an allegory for work and for working at a particular scale and within a particular kind of system. And I think this is a little bit of, you know, a harebrained read, but I think he sees he very much identifies with Oppenheimer. And as somebody who really has has had a profound influence in the trajectory of Hollywood's blockbuster philosophy and approach to making big budget films. I think he sees the kinds of films he makes as the atomic bomb, and I think he sees it as well, a, a chain creating a chain reaction. The film for me, because if if a filmmaker is is thinking of himself as Oppenheimer and thinking of the responsibility of making moves as, movies as akin to making the bomb. The I Batman don't rises. Watch that film. That yeah. sounds no, but awfully... I think, but I think, but I think it's, it's about the analogy. It's not about, it's not that the film, it's not that blockbuster filmmaking is a nuclear weaponry. It's just that he, it's just it's that so the much kinds worse. of films, the kinds of films that he and, you know, Spielberg and whoever. But movies are not responsible that important. For, absolutely not. Which is why it, why it's told in a bubble. Why it's, he d- takes not an interest in the world outside well, of this well, hermetic a, that's environment. That's a bad thing then. Maybe, if, but I found it very compelling. We should probably change careers then. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's like, of course, what? I, I, because I think that movies are not as important <laughs> as atomic bombs, I shouldn't be a film critic. Well, no, like, I don't think it's about importance. I think it's about, it's, it's analogizing a blockbuster, like the phenomenon of blockbuster cinema specifically, yeah. like mainstream no, big budget. I understand that, but that to me is like a big flaw of the movie. Clearly, Nolan is so caught up in the ways oh. that he relates to this character, if, if we are going by your read, that all he can think about is the making as opposed to the horribly huge historical and real world consequences of this bomb that do not have an analogy in something like filmmaking or working at an office or anything. Like the job that Oppenheimer had was not like any other job. In 2023, I watch a movie about Oppenheimer and what I come away with is the A-bomb was probably really bad and led us to a bad place today. And the people making it were probably really conflicted a three-hour, insanely expensive movie about Oppenheimer is telling me in 2023, like, telling me this that I've known all my life. And that the guy who organized it all was, like, kind of like a movie director. Well, ultimately, <laughs> see, ultimately what you're saying, Divika, is why, while I really came away liking this movie, I still ultimately am quite mixed on Nolan because I think his larger project, if you look at Interstellar, which is also about him and you know, an incredibly personal story. He clearly has this self-aggrandizement problem, which again gets to the question of self-importance and, you know, self-seriousness. It's just like he is so caught up in his own story that he can't even tell this massive historical saga without making it about his position in the universe. And like, I think that's a problem, but I also think that it makes for compelling movies. But I think he also sees himself as analogous to like, larger 
narratives of um, he sees his own artistic endeavors and the sacrifices they entail and the responsibilities they carry as analogous to other human endeavors with other real world consequences, which again is why this movie is about um, a guy who's convinced that he's um, that he's destroyed the world because, you know, because, you know, we can't handle the technology that we develop because of various larger forces that we are powerless to to stop. And I think that that, that is a somewhat resonant theme in a sort of very broad sense. But isn't Dr. Strangelove such a more interesting version of that same story? I mean, like to me, like so much more complex and so much more interesting and rich as a text. Well, yes. Well, the problem, well, this is, it's a problem of scale because in, in a Nolan movie, you have the planet Earth as seen from space or you have Florence Pugh uh, committing suicide. And so you have like, and as in, as in the Death Destroyer of Worlds moment, you have mega death on a scale that's impossible to imagine and um, compressed into a human scale that's hilariously um, conventional and a real and a, fa- and a known storytelling beat. And it's hard. And I think that like the, I think that some of the uh, problems that you guys are having with how it handles, for instance, like the, the actual human consequences of the atomic bomb is that that is something this that that's in that sort of in the it's in the middle of those two poles of scale which is like storytelling compression the like unimaginably huge and the synecdotal individual and right. that's that's nolan's formula all right so i do fear that we are approaching oppenheimer-esque bloat i, I mean the movie not the person this conversation can go on for a long time i think people are going to be talking about it for a long time uh, i do think that Unlike Nolan, we must be brave enough to say enough. We must be brave enough to cut. But I will let our guests have the last word. Um, Mark, Maddie, any? how do you feel now compared to how you did about an hour ago when we started chatting? I feel like I have had my intestines eaten by a vulture (laughs) overnight, every night. For the last millennium, yeah. <laughs> Christopher Nolan did that. Always a pleasure, he did that Mark. To me. Always a pleasure. Oh, Always I a pleasure. We did. I thought you were saying we did that to you. Uh, either right. way, <laughs> okay. it's all it's all at it's they're all in it. They're all metaphors for something else. <laughs> I feel like the nucleus of a hydrogen atom that has just been fissured. Is that Ooh. is that the term? Fish fish fissured. I don't know because you know what Oppenheimer taught me nothing. I feel very invigorated by this conversation. Fission, fission. I, I, I don't know. I feel, um, great. I feel personal. I feel afraid of the reaction that this podcast is going to bring down upon me. But like Oppenheimer, we must stand strong. I should have learned my lesson from Tar. Right. Yeah. I think. I think that a lot of people are going to agree with you, Clint, and you're going to you're going to feel vindicated by the time more people have seen this movie. But as as Oppenheimer says at the end, we shall see. That's like one. I think one of his pivotal lines. It is always fun to disagree on the podcast. So thank you both for for coming and engaging in this lively conversation. And I shall see you both around. Hasta la vista. Hasta la vista. Thank you guys so much. This was a joy. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, 
publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.